Zane Lowe, Apple Music. Welcome to another conversation on the interview series. I'm Zane Lowe. These are the conversations I'm fortunate enough to have with some of the most compelling and interesting people making art these days. You know, I don't know why I, I've always been worried about the possibility of talking to Brian Ferry. I, I think I probably read enough interviews with him throughout the heyday of Roxy Music and throughout his solo career, where the image that was presented was somewhat uncompromising, which is totally valid, but also perhaps not particularly built to talk about music. Fortunately for me, that's something that I was taught really early on by, by one of my mentors, which was no artist wants to talk to you. <laughs> you know? It's not personal, it's not that they don't want to talk to you. It's the idea of talking about music or about art uh, is kind of the antithesis of, of why we make it. We make it because we can't find the words. So we, we, we put it through that filter and that's how it gets communicated. So I've gone into pretty much every conversation I've ever had with that in the back of my mind and sometimes at the very forefront of my mind, depending on the first few minutes of the conversation. But um, with Brian Ferry, getting back to my point, I was nervous about this one. And in particular, because again, he doesn't really look back. Although in fairness, Roxy Music have, in recent times, acknowledged their importance and their legacy through shows, never through music. And there hasn't been a new album since the band broke up after a, you know, a really strong and productive time. But they've remained loyal and played shows and given fans that taste of that magic. So here we are celebrating an important anniversary with somebody who actually turned out to be incredibly generous and charming with his time and his answers. This is our, our latest guest on the interview series. I hope you enjoy it. The legendary Brian Ferry. Can you hear Virginia Plain? Yeah, I can. <laughs> when was the last time you actually <laughs> listened to Virginia Plain is my question. <laughs> Uh, this afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> I know why that is. We, we were rehearsing and it's nice to check out how you did it originally. Yeah? And so listening to the original version. Yeah. When you get into the room with your friends who you've known more than half your life uh -huh. and, you, and you get a chance to fire up again as a band that is actually and I mean this in a loving way, kind of starved us. <laughs> uh. <laughs> you know, for, compared to the appetite we've had for Roxy Music, you've been very deliberate and you haven't overcooked it. How does it feel for you when you get in the room and you know it's special? Well, you just have a feeling. I and mean, today working with Paul Thompson, the drummer, you know, it's uh, kind of an emotional uh, kind of connection, you know, which is, you know, music is a very emotional thing and you have to connect with people. Uh, on that level when you're working together and um, yeah, it, was, it was great today we were, we were running through things and uh, slowly getting there <laughs> yeah you said something really poignant there which is for you to truly want to do it there has to be a, an emotional connection and I think that speaks volumes to the legacy of Roxy Music which is we often look at bands who break up who decide not to continue for one reason or another for a period of time because there's acrimony there. But I think what I took from that was that if it's not emotionally resonant, uh -huh. then we don't have to do it. Then it doesn't work. And yeah, so there's, there's emotion between the players and, and of course the audience is like, is half of the whole thing. And so you get such uh, strong feedback from an audience when you've had a long career, because they're, they're all from different generations and from different scenes and so on. And uh, it's great to get people together and uh, their common interest is us <laughs> yeah. and, and our music, you know. So um, it's, it's a very special thing and, and we're all um, yeah, very 
looking forward to it. And uh, it's going to be a moving experience for all of us. It's going to be a very moving experience for me, I can tell you that. Um, it falls on the 50th anniversary of, of where it all started to some degree, um, this debut album, which really put you on a rocket ship in some in some respects. Um, you know, looking back on it now, with with the again, the legacy of Roxy Music over the course of those those eight albums, all the albums that you've done yourself, did it feel fast back then? Or were you just, were you loving the ride? Were you just like, let's go, put this out and let's ride it all? The, the first few years, we, we didn't really stop. We didn't pause to think. There was, we were running from one, one thing to the next, you know, from the studio onto a tour. And it was all kind of connected. There was no breaks, except when I, I think I had my tonsils out in 73. <laughs> how dare you? How dare you? How dare you stunt the flow of our band for having to get your tonsils out? <laughs> I know, very inconvenient for everyone. But uh, so, no, it was a, a bit of a roller coaster, as you said. And um, uh, jumping from one, it was, it was very exciting. And um, the first album was pretty well rehearsed, of course. We, we, we'd been um, working on it for, for, you know, for months and months, um, kind of putting these components together, uh, this kind of jigsaw puzzle of elements, like a collage of sounds and ideas. And, and so that album was more rehearsed than the other. We just went straight in for the other records. And, you can and, hear uh, it though, Brian, like on Remake Remodel, one of the things I love about the first song on your first album is it's like you're introducing the players. So you get towards the tail end of the song and it's like everyone gets their little bar to show off. It just cracks me up every time. It's great, isn't it? It's just like a, you know, a, a little cameo slot for everybody, you know, and they all make their little um, contribution to the, to the thing. And um, yeah, a great way to start off your first record. Um, saying, here we are, this is the introduction, you know. And the party sounds we had, the sound effects before the, the song starts, that was creating a good atmosphere, I think, a bit of a buzz, you know. That was one of the things I think that people really responded to at the, in the beginning. And, and it doesn't matter what year you hear this album, you recognize that ultimately Roxy music are conceptually minded. That it's not just about a collection of nine or 10 or 15 songs that sound great in one order or another, that there are going to be things that link the songs. It's about creating an overarching mood within each experience. Yeah, yeah. We wanted each album as well to kind of feel different, and they did. And sometimes there was a shift, a slight shift of personnel, sometimes a new bass player or something. And of course, you know, the first two albums were with Brian Eno, who was amazing on those records. And then the third album, Eddie Jobson enters, uh, who was a, a really outstanding musician. And so uh, we had some, some great tools to work with, you know, and some brilliant bass players. The bass player kept changing <laughs> for some reason and uh, for various reasons. And um, It's like your spinal tap moment, but it's the other half of the rhythm section. Yeah, yeah. Paul was the kind of powerhouse that kept it all together, you know, and grounded everything. You know, the way that you describe the revolving door of personnel within the band right from the very beginning is unique because most of the bands I've ever spoken to who shift personnel describe it as quite a traumatic and unsettling experience. But the way that you describe it, Brian, was it was almost, it was almost an opportunity. It was rewarding to the overarching creative of Roxy Music. Yeah, we tried to make the best of everybody's talents, you know, and so... If someone left, then somebody would arrive who would bring different gifts and different a different take on things. And 
And so I guess that, in some ways, it always kept things changing a little bit. And, of course, in between each record from For Your Pleasure onwards, I'd be doing some solo things as well, which would kind of give me a sort of holiday away from the band for a couple of months or something. And uh, it became a sort of sideline for me to do albums of covers, of, of, of songs I liked, you know, to a sort of extend um, a broaden my repertoire. These were songs that I wouldn't have written and uh, couldn't have written. And uh, I, I found they were kind of educational for me. So I would come back to the next Roxy project with a bit more experience of having worked on these other songs and with other players and so on, yeah. I feel like when you were making those solo albums, we started to see the side of you and your and your artistic identity that showed a, a love of soul music, far more of a, of a focus on the craft and on your performance, less tempo, concept, more. Can I really capture the resonance of, of, of the song? And I, I wonder when it was time to come back to Roxy Music, which was a far more playful and, like I said, conceptual experience. Did you have to check that side of things at the door a little bit so that you didn't influence Roxy Music in a way that you had changed yourself? Well, I think in Roxy, you know, the, it was my main job, as I saw it. And it was kind of more inventive because we were working each time from a an empty canvas rather than that one that was already sketched in with, you know, words and a melody that Cole Porter had written or somebody or or Smokey Robinson or someone. So yeah, it was Roxy was the was the main was the main focus for me. The other projects were I hope they were enhancing in some way for me uh, as a producer or, or a record maker, say. Mm. You talked about the first two albums with Brian Eno and so much is made of that period of time because of what you've gone on to achieve, the other members of Roxy have gone on to achieve, and of course what Brian's gone on to achieve with the benefit of hindsight, this is like the Avengers of, of, <laughs> <laughs> of sort of music and technology coming together. What was it that, it, that because Brian didn't have necessarily a, an obvious musical role in the band, he was brought in to do other things, which now has become com somewhat common within a, a band dynamic very unheard of back then. How did you make it make sense working with Brian? He was a great ideas person and would come up with, with really great sounds and he would change the sounds of, uh, say, the oboe or the saxophone or the guitar and treat these sounds and bring a, a, weird, a weird and wonderful dynamic to what we were doing, you know. I mean, initially he came to record... We didn't have a tape recorder when we were doing our first uh, rehearsals and we'd been working for, I don't know, two or three months, a few months for Andy Mackay, myself and Graham Simpson when we first started and uh, we actually didn't have a, any way to record ourselves. We didn't have a cassette player or anything. And um, Andy Mackay uh, said, oh, I know this guy who's got a great tape recorder and he'll come and I get him to come and tape us. And... Uh, Brian Eno came and stayed that from that night onwards and uh, became part of the band and was an essential part of, of those first couple of albums. I mean, just listening to Dave Virginia playing, it was just a great bass part that Brian did on the, on the synthesizer. Just like really important, um, sometimes simple parts, which um, helped shape those records. 
As things sort of progressed for Roxy Music and, and success started to play a role, was it more fun for you? Was it more challenging for you as a member of the band to kind of hold on to, to the sort of original sentiment? Like, how did you handle success the first time around? As I said earlier, we, we didn't really pause to reflect on it. We just kept um, working those first few years. I did a long solo tour after the In Your Mind record, I think. Album and um, I felt I needed a break from the band at that point, and so uh, it was a what was it one and a half years or something when I, I was doing solo things. Uh, I did an album called The Bright Strip Bear out in Switzerland, and then we, we reformed uh, for the Manifesto record. Sometimes you just ha have to have a little bit of a break, and as you say, we didn't want to over record I, I you know sometimes the the writing process was very slow for me i think i guess with success you feel that when it comes you, you there's a certain amount of pressure that comes with that to keep on producing good work you know in the midst of all the kind of touring that you have to do uh, interesting new work i mean hopefully we kind of we kept on making interesting records uh, up to Avalon, which seemed like a, a, a bit of a crowning point. Of a, yeah, well, I was going to say, Avalon's fascinating to me because it not only is... I mean, ultimately, you never really feel successful. You're, you're always chasing uh, a different sound or something and trying to do something better, you know. What really is beyond the quality of the record, Avalon achieved that sort of pinnacle of success. Most artists choose to change the way that they do things when they feel like they've reached a point of success and it's not working anymore, so let's try something else. You as a band ultimately decided to call time with a number one album internationally and the biggest thing you'd ever done. It, that was kind of ironic, but I, I think we'd, we'd been on a very exhausting tour with Avalon, um, which went on for a long time. And uh, uh, I remember feeling you know, pretty drained after that and... And we just wanted to take a break. So I, the next record I made was a solo record, Boys and Girls. And then I yeah. I carried on sort of, I kind of enjoyed working with lots of different new people, you know, different musicians. That's the route I kind of, I took after that. But it was kind of great when we reformed for the 2001 tour we did. And then we did some more shows in 2011. And... Uh, when you know we were offered this tour in North America at the beginning of the year, I thought, well, yeah, we all thought it was a great idea to, to do that, and um, especially after the, the last couple of years where everyone yeah has been yeah going through such a strange time, it felt like that it would be wonderful to see our audience again, play together again, and um, celebrate this uh, this fifty uh, kind of. Um, Landmark. <laughs> and having having been working the last year on putting together the the lyric book, that kind of focused me on uh, on the whole catalog of songs in Roxy Music. And um, and what did you think when you started to read the lyric book, when you went back and actually had a chance to reflect on your lyrics as a document and not album by album? Because as you said, you're not looking back, you're not getting to like the third album, listening to that and then making the fourth one. Like you're, you're moving on, like I'm done with that. So this probably was one of the only times you actually looked at, at what you'd written as a body of work. 
Yeah, it's true. It's the first time I really got them all together in one piece like that. And um, yeah, it was. Um, I was impressed how, how productive I was, <laughs> especially in the um, in the early period. And I, I mean, I you were also you fast. were firing a lot of words off in those early albums. I mean, you you learned to hold a note as time went on, but in the beginning, you were basically just spitting for stream of consciousness. There were a lot of words and a lot of verses and. Uh, some of those songs are quite quite long. I'm sorry that uh, I did go on a bit. <laughs> <laughs> are you kidding? Come on, man. Time and duration were never an issue for fans of Roxy music. On the later later work, there's a lot more editing and uh, a kind of bit more refined. I mean, your style of writing is always going to change a bit as you mature or get older and uh, go through various changes. And you, you also want to kind of write different things and simplifying seemed to be a good way to go. <laughs> We're at that crossroads right now where I'm about to talk about boys and girls and, and lead up to, to love letters. But before I, I say goodbye to the, the very young Brian Ferry, I, I just wonder if, if you know... God bless him. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I was going to ask you, when you go back to page one on your lyric book and you read who you were at that moment in time and, and how you chose to express yourself... You know, ultimately, what do you think you were trying to achieve and, and what did you think you had to say back then? Well, at the very beginning, I guess I didn't take the words so seriously. And uh, the first batch of songs, which became the first album, I don't know that it was, um, as I said earlier, kind of a collage of ideas and the music was paramount. It was trying to get the music in shape. And I was just so excited. We were all very excited because it was our first album that any of us had made, you know. And um, first time we'd been in a, a proper recording studio and uh, it was so exciting to do that. And, you know, I, I'd, I'd been at art school for four years and studying art, studying painting. And music had been a big part of my Growing up from the age of 10, I was a really big music fan of different kinds of music, mainly American music and uh, of various types. And uh, when I graduated from art school, I, I was torn, you know, which, what should I do? Do I, do I really want to be an artist or the, the music? I, I'd had a band at college and uh, that was becoming uh, more of an idea to me of maybe this is how I could uh, express myself more completely uh, because I can you know, be writing words and uh, tunes, playing a, a very basic uh, keyboard, still a bad keyboard player, and also working, collaborating with other talented people, um, brilliant people, in fact. So putting together that first band was one of the great moments of my life, you know, of saying, oh, this is, like with Andy Mackay, say, oh, this guy's perfect to for me to work with, because I, I love saxophone and I love the oboe. And to have an oboe in a band was a very unusual sound. It was one of my favorite instruments. And then Brian Eno, as you know, who can create all, all kinds of sounds out of anything. And, uh, and then Manzanera, who was a, a brilliant all-round guitarist and, and a great experimenter with sound again. So. It, it was uh, a dream come true for me to find these people. And put, then Paul, who was from my local town, my local, from the northeast of England, you know, salt of the earth, genuine guy, really fantastic person. 
and uh, the heart and soul of, of the movement behind those songs, you know, the beat that propelled it, you know. The first bass player was a wonderful guy, Graham Simpson, who very into beat poetry, he was a real hipster, and uh, he had the best collection of Blue Note albums, you know, jazz, Eric Dolphy and people like this. And wow. He was a huge jazz fan, as I had been when I was younger, but I then graduated into the the, the seamy world of, uh, of rock music, and um, I was very much into uh, Stax and, and actually Motown and lots of different things, and uh, a, a big fan of the blues initially. And uh, all these great singers who I'd kind of, who influenced me, like Billie Holiday, Frank Sinatra, and Elvis, Otis Redding, all sorts of people. Um, and um, hopefully you kind of build up a kind of um, inventory uh, a, of all these influences, and then something comes out in the end, <laughs> which you hope is going to touch people and move them in some way. And I don't know. That's, what that's we the do. magic. <laughs> that's the magic. I mean, Roxy Music is the only band, as described by yourself, that's ever reached the level of success selling that many albums and playing to so many millions of people that would cite Eric Dolphy as an, as an influence. <laughs> it's amazing. Being a jazz fan, I find that really, really fascinating. You know, one of the things that, that sort of changed for me growing up listening to Roxy Music records in my parents' house and then... As my taste started to develop, as I developed my identity, you moved into this kind of solo career. And I have very vivid memories of these songs like Slave to Love and Don't Stop the Dance and and on, on that album on Boys and Girls, which I feel because like, it was a very benchmark solo experience for you, th that you had really very much go gone for the time being was this sort of staccato stream of consciousness approach to performance and you were really looking for the note. Yeah. I guess I was influenced by a lot of the, by the players I, I was working with in, in, uh, in America um, and over here, actually. I mean, there were some really good musicians who, who would maybe have played with more, a more sense, a sense of space in their playing. People like Marcus Miller, the bass player, say, who is brilliant, you know, and uh, various drummers, Andy Newmark, of course. Wadi Wachtel, it's just random name. Oh, Nile Rogers, all these wonderful musicians who taught me a lot, I think, just through engagement with them, you know, and working together. And um, I think I tried, I tried to just do different things from what I'd done earlier. And as you say, a, a less staccato approach, maybe a little bit more sophisticated in some ways, but hopefully not in a bad way. <laughs> No, in a beautiful way. And I feel like um, if I think of two artists, male and female, who sum up the 80s from a sophistication point of view, it's yourself and Sade. Oh, yeah, she, she made great records. I mean, at that time. And... Not dissimilar in, in approach, I feel, to you, which is to lean into the space and allow people to fill it fans to fill it rather than you fill it all like Roxy Music was just so full of ideas whereas I feel like you were like you can fill the space I'm just going to give you the canvas yeah <laughs> it's nice to have done both things yeah it's yeah it's great to have had the opportunity to do lots of different things and then well, a few years ago I, I did a jazz record with, with some great uh, players uh, London musicians who who work in that early jazz genre and that, that was an interesting project yeah, I mean, I, I definitely want to talk about love letters at some point. And we could do it now. 
there's no timeline here. It's interesting because um, it was just one of those 45s that I had, you know, of the original version, Ketty Lester. And it was such a beautiful song. And I thought, oh, I'd love to do that one day. And was, I remember I nearly did it on my first solo album. But I did a, a different Ketty Lester song instead called River of Salt, which was a very obscure kind of country song uh, from Na from Nashville. And um, it's the only time I, I actually got a letter from from the writers of that song. Uh, I think a husband and wife team uh, from Nashville, and they, they, they wrote me this charming letter of thanks at the, uh, in 73, saying, oh, thank you for doing your rendition of our song and uh, on your album. And uh, that was very nice to get. <laughs> Isn't it crazy that nearly 50 years on from receiving that letter, for all the accolades, you know, the awards and the records broken and the amazing success you've had, that this, this a simple letter from one writer to another. Yeah, it was, it was uh, really um, was touching, uh, handwritten. <laughs> what about um, the way people perceive your music and have been influenced by you as an artist and by Roxy, solo and as a band? Have you enjoyed watching your influence permeate through the arts? Well, it, it, it's it's very rewarding when you see uh, young people liking the music, and it's very pleasurable to to um, to get that feedback that that your music makes some sense to people from another generation, from you know, from a younger generation. It's very very nice, and it's great that the audience that we play to normally or that I've had the pleasure of playing to the last few years has been very mixed and demographically ages and different people. It's great when you see a great mixture of, of uh, generations liking your work and, and sometimes it, and one or two musicians influenced by it and that's great. I mean, it's uh, <laughs> humbling. <laughs> I mean, one of those artists is coming out to play shows with you on this on this tour, I mean, St. Vincent, Annie is is very clearly influenced by Roxy Music and I'm sure over the moon to be able to share this experience with you. How did you settle on, on her? She, she was, uh, yeah, suggested. I thought, what a great idea. And um, yeah, we're looking forward to it very much. It's always good to have a, a female artist, a female singer before we come on because they're, they're going to get an hour and a half of me singing and I think it'd be, it's great when they, they have a, a beautiful girl's voice before. But it's interesting, there's a dichotomy there, Brian, in a way because you've got Annie who walks this line between strong female energy but also she's a boss. Like, she runs the show and she has a strong, strong personality. alpha energy as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then you've got Roxy who have this this group of kind of fellas from England, in your case, the northeast of England. People of a certain age. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I'm not going there, man. I'm, I'm on the same boat as you, bro. Once you get over a certain age, we're right in the same ocean. Stronger um, through the years, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> but you were a fem you had a feminine energy as a band. I mean, right from the very beginning, you brought a strong sense of dance and groove and and fashion play and a playfulness that said, listen, you know, we are not beholden to gender, certainly back then, in a traditional way. Absolutely, yeah. And the early seventies was a was a great time here in London, where everything kind of it was, it was very exciting. The, 
people on the street and it was kind of um, colourful, exciting, edgy and it was a great time to be emerging, you know, a great, it was a great time to be a creative in, I think. And, um, yeah, hopefully we reflected what was going on around us, you know. Oh, definitely, man. And um, when people talk about Roxy music and they don't necessarily know the music enough, but they know of what you've achieved, they always swerve into the, the this idea of being fashionable. That Roxy music, and in particular you, have always been very fashionable. And I've read articles that have gone as far as to say that you ultimately were one of the first artists to bring fashion and music, along with a few of your contemporaries, into sharp focus. How has that sat with you throughout the years? Do you see that or do you just think it's other people making connections? Yeah, fashion is a very fickle thing. And uh, uh, I think we were just um, obviously uh, had a strong visual sense and I always worked with very good designers and photographers and so on. Um, We didn't, I don't think we felt at any time we were following a trend. We were just trying to be ourselves and be interesting uh, and present the music in an interesting way, you know. Um, I think the point is that you were setting the trend. I think that's what people have really settled on throughout your legacy. Well, that's very kind of you to say. <laughs> Stakes is high when you go on stage in a couple of months, mate. You're going to have to get the... <laughs> well, I, I always actually liked... Um, when I used to go to jazz concerts when I was a young lad, I mean... All the all the jazz players I sort of seemed to dress up and the modern jazz quartet always pl- played in black tie, you know. Duke Ellington and his band, Count Basie, they're all kind of very cool and very smartly, very well dressed, you know. The bebop players, Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, Miles Davis, I mean, always very cool. And um, I think when you go on stage and an audience has come to see you, you you want to have some kind of spectacle. And I was working this afternoon just checking out what, how the uh, technical team working on the visual side are, are doing. And it's going to look really good, I think. I'm really pleased. Um, phew. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait. It's going to be like that now until the curtain goes up. I'm smiling. <laughs> yeah, I got you in a great mood. I'm so happy. You know, before uh, before I, we, we say goodbye, we only have a couple more minutes left. Something that always resonated with me was the friendship found a way to come back together. And the idea of performing came along with that decision, but we never got the recording. And in 2005, I think both you and Phil came out in your own way and said, look, we're underway. And it just didn't happen. What happened, Brian? Oh, it just wasn't really feeling it. It didn't seem to be at the right time. I don't know. Fate conspired to not make it work. And uh, I don't know. It just it, it wasn't feeling quite right to me. And um, we had other, other things as well, other, uh, things we were doing individually. Ah, can't say. It's just one of those things. Do you think now at the, at the records that you made with Roxy, just that particular catalogue of music, that group of records, and do you feel very replete? Like... I felt I thought there was a sense of completeness about it after, after Avalon. And um, one never knows, but I, 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 yeah, I think it felt like a complete body of work to me. But, but performing those songs live is a different thing. And 
that's something really f- for us to look forward to. And uh, I, I know that the, 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 a lot of our friends will be out there. And because the audience over the years, they become your friends. They're a big part of your life, you know. And um, you don't actually know them or, or meet them, but you feel them and you kind of see them en masse. And um, uh, it's, a, it's a great connection to have. Yeah. It's the magic. That's the beauty of it. <laughs> it's been a real thrill for me to meet you. Um, well, it's very nice to, to meet you as well. And it's, um, yeah, it's great. This technology that, that we have now, it's incredible that you're, you're there and I'm here and we're uh, together. I know. And uh, I'm at a point now where, you know, these, these moments that I get to spend talking to people who have been so influential um, throughout my life, I'm so grateful for them. And I'll remember this forever, man. And I really appreciate it. And I hope we get to speak again, but we'll yeah, see. Yeah, I hope so too. And um, you're looking great in your studio there. It looks Thanks, like a man. Great, a great zone to be. <laughs> it's really fun. And you look great in your library. I'm going to be I'm gonna be one of your friends in the crowd, man. I'm going to be right there in the crowd. God bless you. And thank you very much. Thank you, Brian. Have a wonderful day. Bye. You know, a truly wonderful conversation with Brian Ferry and one that I won't forget. And luckily, here it is in the interview series alongside many other conversations. If you get a chance and you're joining us for the first time, we try and keep these as evergreen and and long-lasting as possible. So click on any of them and hopefully you'll enjoy them. Add a rating, comment, and and please stick around and be a part of, of this series in the future. Thanks again. Take care.